Lord God, Heavenly Father, we call you Father because we know you through your Son. And in the Son, we learn that you are a God who is one God in three persons. And this divine mystery is something that we rejoice in because in our baptisms, you place that holy name upon us and you claim us to be your own. Though we do not understand the grandeur of who you are, we rejoice that your revelation to us is that you are a God who saves and a God who loves. So keep us ever steadfast in that faith, trusting in Christ to be our salvation. And lead us now this day as we read your word in John, lead us into all truth by your spirit, that we might believe in the Son whom you have sent, and in so believing have eternal life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today is Trinity Sunday. If you didn't go to early church, make sure you go to late church. If you went to early church and didn't understand anything, go back to late church. Maybe you'll catch it the second time. The, the seminarian's going again, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, see? It's good stuff. And he's like getting a master's degree in all of us, and he's got to go twice, so maybe you should go too. So um, today is Trinity Sunday. Let's do a real brief overview. We've done this a lot, so you guys are experts in this. I know you know it all, but just a little review. The whole point of the Athanasian Creed is there is one substance, three persons. Do not divide the substance. Do not confuse the persons. Everybody got that? Okay, it's really easy. One substance. And what do we label that substance? God. Three persons. And what are their names? Father, Son, Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit. Okay, now, in this Trinity, right, in this one substance of three persons, the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Spirit is eternal. How many eternals does that get you? One. Because you can't confuse the persons... And you can't divide the substance. Got it? So the entire creed is simply illustrating that one point. It's not weird. It's just, this is what we mean when we say that. Okay? So the first thing the creed does is it goes through all the eternal realities of God. Right? They're, they're, they're co-eternal. They're co-majesties. All this kind of stuff. Right? And then it says, now, when you talk about the persons... Since you can't confuse the persons, you talk about the Father different than you talk about the Son. Right? Because you can't talk about the Father and Son together as the same because that would be confusing the persons. So the Father is not created. He's not made. He's not begotten. And he's not proceeding. He's just the Father. The Son, is he made? No. Is he created? No. Is he begotten? Yes. yes. Of whom? Father. father. Hence the word father. Right? The spirit. Is the spirit created? No. Is the spirit made? No. Is the spirit begotten? No. Is the spirit proceeding? Yes. There you go. That's it. That's all I got to know. So, did the father take on flesh? <sighs> did the father suffer? No. Did the spirit die for your sins? Who did that? Jesus. Jesus. Okay? The Son. So, now, the rest of the creed is going to say, of those three persons, we're going to talk about 
one of them, which is the second one. And this one person of Jesus, because that person became incarnate in flesh, right? By the way, not by God becoming part of humanity, but by humanity being sucked up into the Godhead. Yeah, that one will blow your mind. Okay, that's what it says. This one person, Jesus, who is the Messiah, right? He is the Christ, has two natures, right? And those natures are divine because he's begotten of the substance of the Father from all of eternity and also true man because he's born of the substance of his mother in our time. What does that mean? That means between creation and the second coming. That's what it means, right? In our time. The time when we are living and moving and having our being, right? Okay, now, here's the thing. You can't have two Jesuses. You can't have zero Jesuses, and you can't have two Jesuses. You can't have three Jesuses. You can have how many Jesuses? One, One Jesuses. Okay? And in that Jesus, how many natures you got? Two. Two. You can't have one, you can't have three, you can't have zero, you have to have two. So there's one Jesus with two natures. Now, you can't smush those natures together and you can't divide the person into two Jesuses. Right? So, when Jesus died on the cross, who died on the cross? Jesus. And in that Jesus, how many natures are there? Two. Two. You can't say just the human Jesus died and the divine Jesus didn't because that would be either having two Jesuses, one that's divine and one that's human, or it'd be getting rid of one of his natures. Does that work? You can't do that. So everything Jesus did, he did as one person with two natures. Now, here's the thing. Some of the things he does looks really human. So we say he does that according to his human nature. Other things he does look really divine. Or he's given a divine title. And when that occurs, we say, well, that's according to his divine nature. But in everything he does, both natures are present. So when he gets tired, when he gets angry, when he gets hungry, that's according to his human nature. But the divine nature is still there because how many Jesuses you got? One. One. And in that person of Jesus, both natures. We haven't gotten to the point yet. That's all preliminary. Here's the point. All of this, the Trinity, one substance, three persons, don't divide the substance, don't confuse the persons, one person, two natures, not two Jesuses, and not smush natures, the reason any of this matters is because it's for your salvation. All of this is because God loves you. And he has done everything in all eternity to save you, to forgive your sins, to be the one who stands as the righteousness of God. Because, Susan, at the end days... You will stand and you will give an account of your own deeds done in this body, whether good or evil. 
Here's my friendly advice. Do not stand on your own at that time. Run to Jesus and say, that's my salvation. His death, his resurrection, I will count as mine. Right? That's the hope I have. We do not stand on that last day and say, look at me and how good I was. Because if you do, God will say, well, that's nice, but you did a lot of evil, and therefore you go to everlasting fire and contempt. Right? That's the way it works. But if you stand on that last day in the righteousness that is the very Son of God who will be the judge then he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome to the kingdom prepared by my Father before all creation. Right? Yeah? So what happens is, in, and this is where Lutherans need to be a little more explicit in how they teach things, in the means of grace, in the word and sacrament, what happens is, God takes what Jesus accomplished on the cross and he makes it yours. Right? So that on that last day when you get an account of your own works, it's because what Jesus has done and accomplished as the very righteousness of God has been made yours through baptism, through Lord's Supper, through the hearing of the word. Now, how in the world does a sinner get Jesus through those means of grace? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Tom. Well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, so do you see how it works? Do you see how that all works? See, it's, it's really not that complicated. It's really all about reading the scriptures. And, and here's the thing that I want you to get in all of this. The Trinitarian discussion, all of this stuff, is actually not what we think and then we try to find ways to prove it in the Bible. No, it's the exact opposite. These are simply the ways that the church has said, well, this is what the scriptures seem to be saying. How do we talk about it? The whole discussion of Jesus as two natures and one person, do you know why we do that? Because there are places in the Bible where he really seems to be described as God. And there's other places in the Bible where he really seems to be described as human. There are places that even say that the church of God is redeemed by his blood. By God's blood. And we say, well, God doesn't have blood. That doesn't make any sense. So how do you explain this? You say, well, the Bible presents Jesus as... There's only one Jesus right around the Bible. Right? Nowhere in the Bible to say, well, the, the divine Jesus did this and the human Jesus did this over here. No, it's just one Jesus. But this one Jesus is described by words that only describe God. He's also described by words that only describe humans. So what do we say? We say, well, there's one Jesus with two natures. And then what you find out is that this language isn't weird. This is exactly what the New Testament says. This is what Paul says in the introduction to the book of Romans. 
that this Jesus that I'm proclaiming, he's the son of God and he's the son of David. He's born of Mary. You're like, what? He, so you're saying he's God and man? Yeah, that's what we're saying. Okay, so all of this theology is not smart dudes sitting in a room trying to figure out things to say that sound really smart about Trinity. No, it's actually people reading the Bible and saying, well, it says this. How do we describe that? And people say, well, I think what happens is that Jesus' mind is divine, but his body is human. And we go, that's interesting. Let's, think, let's run that through the scriptures and see if it works. We read it through and go, nope, that doesn't quite work. That's a heresy. Heresy is a fancy word for wrong. <laughs> Thanks for playing. That's all it means. Heresy is just a giant in the church card. Okay? So this guy named Apollinarius said, I got it figured out. When it says Jesus does divine stuff, that's just his mind. And the logos from John 1, the eternal logos, is the mind of Christ. The rest of Jesus is totally human. And we went, that's really good. And then we went, nope, that doesn't work. That's not quite right, because that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures don't make that kind of a definition on this. As a matter of fact, that kind of destroys the idea of the entire incarnation of God in human flesh. Right? Well, this other guy came along and said, well, what you really have is you have, you have a Jesus with two natures, but those natures are kind of like boards that are glued together. And you can kind of say, well, you know, this part of Jesus is divine, this part is human. We went, that's really smart. Eh. That's not right, right? No, that's not how it works. Because everything that Jesus does, he does with both natures. And another guy came along and said, no, it's not two natures. What it is is like there's this third substance that's created in the incarnation. So you have this Jesus, and his two natures are mixed together like in a blender. So you have like this, this weird Jesus thing. And we go, that's really fun. But that's totally wrong. Okay? And that's actually why the creeds were written, was to say, when we talk about this, we have the proclivity to say the wrong things. Because we try to explain it. And the creeds say, no, that's not how you explain it. This is the best we can do. Does that make sense? Okay, questions, thoughts? Why don't the Reformed churches use creeds? Um, most of them do. Most of the actual Reformed churches do use the creeds. But the, the Baptist tradition, the anti, there's anti-creedal churches, which is really an American phenomenon, by the way. Americans have this proclivity to not want to be constrained by people above them. Have you noticed? <laughs> so what happened was these, these Bible-believing churches grew up. They were like, we're not going to confess the creeds because we just believe what the Bible says. And we went, what do you think the creeds are? We're kind of just saying what the Bible says. But they think it's some kind of man-made doctrine that's trumping the scriptures. And so they're like anti-creeds. But the funny thing is, if you, if you, um, this is really funny. If you go to like, if some of these, some of these churches, church bodies that are anti-creedal, they have colleges or universities. And if you want to teach there, you know, you have to sign their statement of faith. <laughs> like, well, what do you think a creed is? Oh, we don't believe those. Okay, what do I teach at university? You have to sign our statement of faith. I don't think you know what that word means. <laughs> so that's the problem. Is, is what, what happens is, and, and this is something that's true too, as you run around this world and you see churches that claim to be non-denominational, that's not possible. 
Every church believes something. Right? Mm -hmm. If they're not if they're not actually a denomination, then don't go because they're just people going around going, don't say that. Well, let's pray. No, let's not pray because we don't know if we believe that or not. Right? You you have to believe something to be to come together. So so yesterday um, I didn't go because I'm scared of people. But my daughters and my wife went downtown to the the parade, and it was a, it was a church. Because everybody was there to worship the same thing. You, you were not allowed to go downtown yesterday and wear a Blackhawks jersey. You're like, yay, Blackhawks! You'd be like, okay, we love you, but dude, no. You're, I mean, seriously, you'd be like, you're at the wrong parade. Right? I mean, we wouldn't have killed them necessarily because we're St. Louisans and we're nice. But, but it would have been, everybody there would have been like, you're, you're simply at the wrong place. Like, this gathering is about the blues. Right? Yes. And, and that's kind of the way churches are. Is it's, it's us getting together to say, we all believe the same thing. So when a, when a church claims to be non-denominational, they're just not being upfront about what they believe. And that's, that's my point is, that's the kind of problem with an anti-creedal church, is you're like, well, what do you believe? And they're like, well, we don't confess the creeds. And we're like, well, that kind of seems like a statement of faith right there. So what do you believe? And the problem is either they're consistent and they actually don't believe anything, which they just slide off into nothingness, or they actually just don't tell you what they believe until you violate it, which is, I know from personal experience, one of my good friends joined a non-denominational church and then tried to teach infant baptism. He was literally kicked out. And he's like, but I didn't think you guys had doctrine. Oh, we don't. Well, I believe that infants should be baptized. Well, you're out. You can't teach that. Why? Because it's wrong. But you don't have doctrine. <laughs> yeah, but they don't have doctrine. See, that's the problem. So even anti-credal churches have creeds. They just don't like those. And here's, here's my point. This is the creed that the church has confessed for hundreds of years, thousands of years, when you look at the Apostles' Creed. Uh, let's go with that. Right? There's a reason these words are important. There's a reason we keep going the same words and the same <clears throat> phrases. Because they're true. That's what the scriptures teach. They don't need dates. They're already married. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, so the Apostles' Creed, we have no idea when the Apostles' Creed was written. So the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, we have, I mean, the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed, we have no idea when they were written. All we have is evidence when they were first used. So the Apostles' Creed, we find roots of it going all the way back to the 2nd century, which is 100s AD. Okay. And, it, and the earliest uses of it we have is within the, the, the context of baptisms. Okay? Now remember, when you read the Apostles' Creed, they're pretty much going to, you're reading Philippians 2, Colossians 1 and 2, some statements in Romans. It's, you can pretty much find it in the New Testament. So here's the way to think about the creeds. The earliest Christian creed that we know of, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the first Christian creed is Jesus is Lord. That's the creed. 
The Apostles' Creed is explaining what that means. It's the earliest form of explaining what that means. And we have shorter versions of it and slightly longer versions of it as you go through church history until all of a sudden you have this Apostles' Creed. And there are actually very uh, diverse theories on how we got to these exact words, but we do have these exact words and they, be, they become the words. The Nicene Creed is different. The Council of Nicaea actually met in 325. There's another council in 381, another council in 425. There's a couple other councils there. These are worldwide councils of the bishops of the churches, and they wrote the Nicene Creed. So basically the Nicene Creed, you want to think Nicene Creed was finalized in 425 or 431. I mean, there's some different dates in there, but around 425 is when the, the Nicene Creed was kind of completed and put in form. It was written for about 100 years. Okay, there's a couple phrases that get changed here and there. Because this was all those things I talked about, different Jesuses and all that, that was all going on at this time. That's why they wrote the creed. So they're like, people are going, I think we should talk about Jesus this way. Like one of the big ones was, I think we should talk about him as created. That he's a first creature. Pretty, ooh, that's fun. In our reading today, Proverbs chapter 8, if you, did you remember that, the Old Testament reading? That's the text they used to say that Jesus was created. It says, before the world was created, God made me. They're like, see, he's created. And so a lot of people are talking about Jesus as the first created being. When the Nicene, the Council of Nicaea got together and went, eh, wrong, thanks for playing. And so that's why the creed says, very God, a very God, begotten, not made, one sentence with the Father, right? So it's hammering at home that that's not the right, right way to talk about Jesus. Okay? So around 425, and then the Athanasian Creed, um, I subscribe to an early theory of the Athanasian Creed. There are two theories, major theories. But I believe it was written sometime in the 5th century, which is the 400s AD. Um, other people believe it was written in the 7th century. The earliest evidence we have it as a set creed is in the 7th century. But there are, there are glimpses of it in the 6th century and the 5th century. Um, and the guy who I think wrote it was this French dude who wrote it around the, in the 5th century. It was not written by Athanasius. Athanasius was actually the guy who wrote the Nicene Creed. But the church does not want you to actually understand this, so they just put the wrong name in the wrong creed and you get all confused. So, it's just for seminarians to, to fail test, really. Is it called the Athanasian Creed because it's supposed to expand upon the Nicene and explain the different... The, the best we can guess is that it was called Athanasian, the Athanasian Creed because it was honoring Athanasius as the guy who preserved the Orthodox. Orthodox is a churchy word to say right, correct, right? So Athanasius preserved the correct teaching of Christ in the middle of all this heresy, and so they honored him by naming this creed after him. He's so thankful. Not really. Okay, so Athanasius did not write the Athanasian Creed. The problem with the Athanasian Creed problem is that it's not written in Greek. So the Nicene Creed and the, and the Apostles' Creed both written in Greek. The Athanasian Creed is written in Latin. So that's why you move the date. Not only do we not have evidence of it, but also the fact that it's written in Latin kind of removes it outside of that early period of the church. Okay, so Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed written in Greek. Athanasian Creed written in Latin. Is that one of the reasons why we do the Apostles and the Nicene Creed 
more. I mean, I know the Athanasian Creed's forever long, which is one yeah. Of that's it's know. really a practical thing. People are just like, I don't like it. Stop it. I think we should confess the Athanasian Creed every Sunday. I mean, seriously, it's like the coolest creed ever. I love the Athanasian Creed. Because it's got all the good stuff of the Apostles' Creed, all the good stuff of the Nicene Creed, plus, like, all this extra fun language. Could you imagine teaching your five-year-old the Athanasian Creed? They go to kindergarten, and they're like, hey, how are you? Like, hi, I'm Johnny. Well, what do you do? Like, I worship the Trinity and Unity and the Unity and Trinity. What? Well, there's one substance. You, you, you don't want to divide the substance. You don't want to confuse the persons. Let's play ball. You know? I mean, I just think that would be wonderful. My four children. Okay, so that's that. That's the Trinity. That's everything you know about Jesus. Um, any questions before we get to John? Yes? We know who wrote the Apostles' Creed? No, we have no idea who wrote the Apostles' Creed. Nope. It just seems to be a conglomeration of different phrases from the church, and they finally sat down and were like, I like that one. And they just put it together, run it through the mill, had it all checked out. It probably was actually, if you want to look at the history of the creeds, the, the Apostles' Creed probably formally adopted in line with the Nicene Creed. Like, yes, this is the truth. But there's also evidence of way before that, um, and that's why it's hard to talk about. There's, that, there's literally a book written on this about the formation of the Apostles' Creed. It's really good, dude. It's fun. Um, there's an earlier creed called the Roman Creed, and some of the thing is from that. I don't. But that's because I'm weird. Anyway. Okay? So we don't know. I wish we knew. I'd tell you, but we don't. But the Nicene Creed, we do know. All right. Any other questions? Is Christ's divine and human nature like, or not, like's probably not the right word, our saint sinner nature. Some people have tried that, but no. Not at all. Um, the saint center is actually the reason the reason you don't want to go down that road too much is because saint center is actually something that's going to change in eternity. You won't be saint center for all of eternity. You're going to be just saint. So saint center is more of a problem God doing something to solve it. Whereas the two natures of Christ, he still has both. We'll always have both. What about soul and spirit? Soul and spirit is a fun thing to, I have no idea. I, and that's because we don't know what it means. We, this just in, we have no idea what the word soul means. No clue. Nobody does. Are they teaching something different in seminary these days? Do they know? Have they figured out what a soul is? Not really. Yeah, we have no idea. Not the bottom okay. of the shoe. What's that? It's not the bottom of the shoe. It, well, yeah, we got that soul, but it's spelled differently. <laughs> and it just messes you all up. So, so the problem is, um, the Bible is clear in that we are, to be human means you have body and soul. That's clear. And then Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 says, body, soul, and spirit. And we're like, well, what's the difference between a soul and a spirit? Oh. Right? So we know that. We know that, that body and soul constitute a human being. But we don't know is what a soul is. If you want to say that humans have a soul and animals don't, then soul is the image of God. Okay, well, what's that? So in the history of the church, they define soul differently. Um, 
it, it's not the floaty part of you that exists for all of eternity and your body is the bad part of you that you need to get rid of. That's not what it is. It's just the complementary part to your body that makes you human. Okay? Now, in the Athanasian Creed, it says that Jesus has a rational soul. Okay? And that's because one of the ways that the early church spoke about the soul was that it is our reason. It's what allows us to think. So the image of God is the ability for people to reason where animals can't reason. Which is why one of the pursuits of science is to prove that animals can reason. It's actually an intentional pursuit. Right? When I was, when I was a kid, I was told that humans are simply another animal in the animal kingdom. No different than other animals. That's totally contradictory to what the scriptures say, right? Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture does not say you're just an animal. It says, well, let's make man. Let's make him in our, our image. Right? And so he created him, male and female. He made him in his image. Okay? So, so we want to preserve that notion, which, which makes this whole discussion weird. Um, this is why, um, Roger, what you're getting at is, this is why, and we've, we've gone over this in the past, I have a strong feeling over to John at this point, that, that the human nature, is this correct? Does Jesus have a human nature? Does he have sin? No. So big fat, that didn't work. See, this is, this is how you do Christological theology. This is how you learn to think because of the incarnation of Jesus. Is you say, yeah, human nature is sin because we all have original sin. We all have human nature and we can't have a, our entire being is corrupted by original sin. So our nature is actually created sinful. We even say in our confession, by nature, I am sinful and unclean, right? We all see human nature is sin. And then we go, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus changes things. And because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we actually learn that human nature is not sin. So how do we talk about it? Our human nature has been entirely corrupted by sin. So what will be restored to you in the eschaton, in the end times, what will be restored to you? Your human nature without sin, which I've never experienced. Right? Adam and Eve would have had that when they were created in the image of God. Read Christ. Right? So their natures before sin would have had would have been very very similar in the human point to what Jesus has. Okay? So you can't say, so to say, to err is human might be right because it's an action, but you can't equate humanity with sin because Jesus is fully human and yet is without sin which really teaches you who you are you were created to be like Christ you don't have the divine nature but you do have a human nature and the human nature does not mean you have to sin you are freed from that to love God and love neighbor and to not sin right does that make sense
Okay. Any other questions? Susan, go ahead. Why not? By nature, sinful and unclean. Yeah. But that's the original sin. Right. So that's confessing original sin. That means that I was born. That I was born with original sin. I was conceived with some original sin. I, that's what it. That's what that means. But it's not actually confessing this. Okay. It's not actually saying that human nature is sin. It's saying, it's saying that part of the confession is actually saying I'm not just saying I've messed up occasionally. I'm saying that I'm sinner. That I, I am a per, as a person, am a sinner, regardless of my actions. Even if I avoided sinning today, I'm still a sinner. And I would still need forgiveness. Forgiveness is not tied to individual actions. It's actually a reconciliation of you to God because your sin has separated you, right? Mm-hmm. And the manifestation of that sinfulness is your actions or can be your actions or your thoughts. Right? Does that make sense? You guys look at me like I'm from from Mars. Does that make sense? You guys know you're sinners, right? Regardless of your actions. Your actions are just awful proof of that truth. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah. But this side of the grave, we will, even though we try and strive as best as we and to live by the commandments and to love their neighbor and yeah. as ourselves and all that, we're, we're going to fail. Why? Because I'm... Because we're sinful by nature. Yes, yes! That's right, because you're a sinner. That's what you're confessing. That's exactly the point of the confession. You're coming before God and saying, I'm in no... I am not even pretending that I can be good at this. I'm by nature sinful. I, I, I recognize this. Even when I try to do what you want me to do, I, I set my mind and say, yes, today I'm going to not sin. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. And what do I find myself doing? That which I don't want to do. Ah. Right? What's Paul's conclusion? What a wretched man I am. Who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's the point of it. You, the faith teaches you to never look here, not me, yourself. Never look in, always look out to Christ. So faith says all this talk of sin and forgiveness and righteousness and heaven and all that kind of stuff, that's where you want to look. That's where you want to look. If you're ever looking here at yourself to determine you and God, you're off, right? I'm wrong. Thanks for playing. But what you want to do is say, whenever it comes to me and God, whether we're talking about sin, grace, forgiveness, Lord's Supper, baptism, word, whatever you want to talk about, Trinity, whatever you want to talk about, get your mind, get your heart, get your eyes, get your understanding there to what Jesus has done on the cross. That's how you figure it out. Right? Well, I'm trying to follow God's commandment. I really am, but I stink at it. You go, It's not about how good you are at it. It's about Christ as the righteousness of God being your Savior. Right? So go love and serve. Yeah? Does that make sense? And that's really what faith is. Faith is always saying, look at Jesus, trust in him to be your Savior. It's a a totally binary 
conditions in it for, for everybody. Right. No matter what religion they are. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. It's either self or Christ. That's exactly well said. Is that it doesn't matter what religion you are, this is still true. You're either trusting in Christ or you're trusting in yourself. Right? It doesn't matter what religion you're in. That's still true. Right? Yes. And so we're not saying, oh, we've got it all figured out and you guys are wrong. No? What do we say? You're either trusting in, in, in something. Well, you can trust in a lot of things. Or yourself. Let's go blues. Right, exactly. That's not going to help you. No. Only for one day, maybe. But So what do we say to somebody who's in a different religion? You have a different solution. Nope. Christ. Yes. That's solution. Tell them about Christ. Tell them about Christ. Tell them about Christ. Same thing you would say if you walk to somebody who's in this religion. What do you do? Tell them about Christ. And if they agree with you, you rejoice in this together. That's what the scriptures say. Right? How blessed is this that we live in unity, that we have the same fellowship of faith. If you walk up to somebody and they're a different religion, it doesn't change the conversation. You're still talking to a sinner who needs to know about God's love in Christ, right? Well, I believe in 32 million gods. Well, that's nice. Let me tell you about Jesus. Right? I mean, it, I don't care. It's, it's, not a, it's not whether or not there are many paths to God. Come on, people. We don't need to review this. John wrote it for you. He told you the truth. He said, look, Jesus said one day, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Let's not argue about that. That's just the way it is. So you can either spend your days arguing about whether or not there are different paths to God, or you could start telling people about the path to God. His name is Jesus. See, the Christ, that's the Christian church's witness, is to go out and be Christ to this world. You know the truth. Say it. Teach it. Proclaim it. Well, you know, I think Muhammad. Well, that's nice. Let me tell you about my Jesus. You know, let's get to the reality of sinners and God and what God has done about it. His name is Jesus. And the creeds give you the words to say so that you know that you're confessing what the church has always said. Right? All right, let's get to John. Just so I want to, because it's fun. Let's read John 3, verses 13 through 15. John 3, Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament. Chapter 3, you guys know this chapter. You know it, you love it. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Someone read that. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Good. Thank you very much. So who is the Son of Man? Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. Do you know that Son of Man is one of the most important descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament? We've got over this, but I just want to review. Son of Man is what Jesus calls himself. And usually, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's going to talk about his suffering and death. Okay? Now, here's the cool thing. 
No one calls Jesus the Son of Man in the entire New Testament except for Stephen in Acts 7.56. It's the only place in the entire New Testament where someone other than Jesus uses the word Son of Man to describe Jesus. The rest of the time, it's Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. Okay? Now, this is kind of important because Son of Man in the Old Testament has several different meanings. One is human. It is simply the way to say human. Okay? So in some ways, Jesus is calling himself a human being. Son of Man is also the word for a prophet. Okay, God refers to the prophets as Son of Man sometimes, especially the book of Ezekiel. I think it's 96 times. Don't quote me on that. It's somewhere around there. There's actually an argument about how many times because, anyway, a whole other issue there. But Ezekiel's a little goofy sometimes. Um, but Son of Man is one of the designations for prophet. So you have Jesus as person. You have Jesus as prophet. Son of Man is also a designation in Daniel chapter 7 for the eternal judge who will come at the end times and judge the world. I saw one like a son of man descending on the clouds, and he will stand in judgment. Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, in the Septuagint, not in the Hebrew, and there's reasons for this, in the Septuagint, the son of man is equated with God. Okay? So now the son of man carries the idea of man and God. It actually carries that in the title. In the history of the title in rabbinic literature, you have this idea of human qualities and divine qualities. And Jesus describes himself with this term, which nobody understands, right? Until after his, his death and resurrection. Then they start understanding it. But so this is Jesus' favorite, most people say it this way, this is Jesus' favorite self-designation. When he talks about himself, he most often calls himself the Son of Man. Okay? What's the significance of having a snake lifted up on the cross? You will, boy. If you can't answer that in this, this time, we do that. Yeah, we, I mean, we need to just start now and go until Jesus returns. All right, so... <laughs> It's that big of an answer. So number two, how is the Old Testament a prophecy of Jesus? He's relating it to the wilderness when the snakes were sent. Yes. And to look to the serpent on his So we have to look. So John asks Tom's question, right? Why is John equating Jesus, or why is Jesus himself, equating his crucifixion with an event in the Old Testament. Why is he doing that? Because he's saying in Numbers 21, when Moses lifted up a serpent on the pole, what was that actually about? The death and resurrection of Jesus. He's actually saying all the stuff that you've read about in the Old Testament, those are really prophecies of what Jesus is going to do. So that's the point. The, the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament is a prophecy about Jesus. And if you don't read it that way, 
you're misreading it. This was in our gospel today. This was in our gospel reading today from John chapter 8. Jesus says, the God I'm talking about is the one that you think you're talking about, but you're wrong. You're so wrong, you don't even know who he is. And they're like, well, who do you think you are? He goes, well, I happen to be that God, so I know what I'm talking about. They're like, ah, you knew. Uh -uh, you're not as good as Abraham. And he goes, are you crazy? Abraham's joy was seeing me. They're like, you can't be saying this stuff. You're not even 40 years old. You, you're telling me you've seen Abraham? And he goes, before Abraham was? I am. They're like, whoa, you're claiming to be Yahweh. And he goes, mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So they pick up stones to kill him. And he hides himself and leaves the temple. What happens when God leaves his temple? Not good. Israel destroyed. Okay? I mean, this is what's going on in John chapter 8. We read it in, in church. But this is the whole point, is that when you read the Old Testament and Jesus is not the fulfillment of it, you're misreading it. You're making up a new God that doesn't even exist. Because the God of the Old Testament is the one who's fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the point. So then we get back and we say, lift it up. Lift it up. Lift it up is used four times in the Gospel of John. Here, 8.28, 12.32, and 12.34. All four times this Greek verb lifted up refers to the crucifixion of Jesus. And here's the thing. I've told you before, John loves to use word plays, a word that used means two different things at once. This word lifted up also means exalted. So, which is actually what exalted means, is to lift up, right? But when Jesus says, when I am exalted, all men will be drawn to me. When I am lifted up, then you will believe that I am. When I am lifted up, right? He keeps saying this. And this lifted up, exalted thing most people think the exaltation of Jesus is his resurrection, but John says, no, 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 no. The exaltation of Jesus is his crucifixion. It's his crucifixion. God is exalted when Jesus is crucified. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. See, the giving of the Son is the crucifixion. That whoever believes in Him will not but have everlasting life. See, see, that's, the, that's when God is glorified. God is glorified when you trust in Him to save you. This is the fundamental reality of who God is, is He rejoices to be your Savior. That's His glory. You want to praise Him? Praise Him for saving you. Praise Him for forgiving your sins. Praise Him for loving you. Praise Him for never leaving or forsaking you. The greatest praise you can give to God is to confess your sins. To come to Him and say, I trust that you are my Savior. Here are all my sins. Here are all my failures. Here's everything that makes me not deserve your love. Everything. I lay it before you and I trust that your action in Christ saves me. That's worship. That's actual worship of God.
to say, God, I've messed up, but I'm going to fix it. You don't worry about that. Is that worship? No, that's, that's just all about me. So what do we do before God? He invites us. Come. Confess all your sins. All of them. Don't lie. Don't pretend. Don't say, well, I'm doing pretty well, or, you know, I messed up, but there's justification for it. No, 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 no. Don't come with any of that junk. Just come and say, I've messed up. Thought, word, deed. I don't deserve anything but eternal punishment. But for the sake of Jesus Christ, have mercy. That's worship. See? And so what he says is, when Jesus is lifted up, when he's exalted, this is God at his best. God at his best is Jesus dying for you. Because in that action is the salvation of the world. Now, here's the thing. I told you guys, I'm getting your answer. This is your answer. I've told you guys this before. And this is the fun thing. I want to show you this. John is going to teach you how to read Moses through the lens of, remember? Isaiah. John reads Moses through the lens of Isaiah. So now here it is. This passage right here, quoting an event from Numbers chapter 21, was written by Moses. But the words that John uses to describe this, he's going to run through the book of Isaiah. So let's go. Let's go. Quickly. Isaiah chapter 52. You guys all know this. This is something you guys know by heart. Isaiah 52 verse 13. Isaiah 52 13. Don't leave now. I'm just getting started. <laughs> Isaiah 52, 13. Someone read that for us. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Did you hear that? The servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 52 and 53, because that's one long chapter, will be high and lifted up. And John quotes Jesus as saying, just as Moses lifted up the servant. See, you see this connection? The servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 52 and 53 will be high and lifted up. That's who he is. Now, look in Isaiah 53. What will he do when he's lifted up? I mean, you can read the whole chapter, but start 53 verse 4. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteem as stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Right? And like sheep we all got astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the crucifixion. High and lifted up. Now, don't stop. We've got to keep going. Now, who in Isaiah is high and lifted up? The servant, now, but go back to Isaiah chapter 6. This is the genius of the Gospel of John right here. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1.
Isaiah 6.1. Someone read that for us. In the year that King Messiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Wait, what? Who's high and lifted up? What does it say? The Lord. And you guys know, when it's, in, when it's like that, who is it? This is Jesus. This is Yahweh. So this is a vision of Yahweh. We just sang about this in church, right? Isaiah, mighty seer, in days of old, high spirit, high notes I can't sing, and all kinds of stuff, right? And so in Isaiah 6, Yahweh is the one that's high and lifted up. In Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant of Yahweh is the one who's high and lifted up, and the one who's high and lifted up will die for the sins of God's people. In John, he's saying that Jesus is high and lifted up who will die for the sins of the people. And he's saying when Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, he was prophesying that lifting up is Yahweh's gift of his servant to die for the sins of the people, which is all fulfilled in Jesus. All of it's fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? So this is really the gospel that John is saying to us. John is saying, is quoting Jesus that he talks to Nicodemus and he's saying, all of this stuff you've ever known about God, all of it. Remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He knows the entire, all of Moses by heart and probably most of Isaiah by heart, okay? And Jesus is saying to him, all of that will be fulfilled when I am high and lifted up. They're like, oh, wow, you think you're big stuff. And he goes, just you wait. And then Nicodemus sees Jesus high and lifted up above the earth, dead. Dead. And what does he do? What does the Gospel of John say? He went and bought spices, 75 pounds worth of spices, which is what you bury a king with. That's a king's burial allotment. And he buries Jesus' body because he's a secret disciple of Jesus, because he sees the king lifted up. And he hears a conversation he had with Jesus one night where if you want to enter the kingdom of God, there's only one way in. It's by water and the spirit. It's by the king lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so also will the son of man be lifted up. Right? And just as God saved through that servant lifting up, so now there's a greater salvation, the whole kingdom of God, not just these serpents in the wilderness, not just one incident in numbers that had to be destroyed in Second, in second Kings. No, in this lifting up, everyone who believes will have eternal life. Not just saved from snake bites. Eternal life. Right? It's a new game, as some would say. Isaiah himself says. It's a new game. Because now, this one who is lifted up is not just God saying to Moses, build a servant. It's actually Yahweh himself dying for the sins of his people. Right? Does that make sense?
So that's the whole lifted up stuff. And what happens is, is this snake in the wilderness actually becomes an idol that becomes worshipped in Israel. And so it has to be destroyed. I think it's Hezekiah in 2 Kings where he actually destroys the snake. Well, God could have had Moses use anything on that cross and lift it up to, to stop the snake bites. Just whatever he told him. But, but uh, I, I was wondering if there was any significance between the snake because it goes back to the promise back at the original fall. Yeah, I, I, I always like those connections, but I'm, I'm reticent to use them because the New Testament doesn't. Um, but the seminary does, so we like that. If you go to the chapel of St. Timothy and St. Titus at Concordia Seminary, the Jesus on the cross looks like a snake. Okay, it's an allusion to this verse. Okay, so, so in the history of the Christian church, there has been a lot of people who will say, you know, by a snake we fell, by a snake we overcome, those kind of things. We, we, we do it in our, um, in our prayers, in our proper prefaces, we do it with a tree. By the tree of the garden we fell, by the tree of the cross we have overcome. So the snake would be the same kind of tying together, right? The snake deceived, and now the snake is overcome. So God told Moses to make the snake. Right. So he doesn't do anything without, without so, reason. So that's right. So we, But he doesn't tell us why. Like, this is it. This is the interpretation. So we is have to wait and talk, ask him later. Ask, you know, you've got a list. There's a whole long list. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's weird, isn't it? You would think you would have to make... Remember, this is the God who says, don't make any graven images. And then he says to Moses, make a graven image. And not just make it, but then worship it. Like, bow down before it, look up to it, and trust in it for salvation. And Moses is like, you don't make any sense. You're the one who told me, you wrote it with your own hand, don't make any graven images. And now you're telling me to make a graven image? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, so there's got to be something, and Jesus tells us what it is, is that this is pointing ahead to a greater event. Okay? Yeah, and the, the fact that it's a snake, I don't know. He's fulfilling the promise in the garden. Yes. Right. So, the, so, the, so it goes back to, to Genesis 3.15, which is the place where we have the serpent and the Son of Man crushing the serpent. Which, I, which is the most logical explanation. But the New Testament doesn't make that connection, which if they asked me to write a book, I would make that connection. God doesn't want me to write a book of Bible, so I won't. Yeah, I don't know. It's the best we can do. Okay, um, let's pray so we can go. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we have seen our Savior high and lifted up. And so like Isaiah, we say, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in a people of unclean lips. I am not worthy to stand in the presence of the king. But just as you did for Isaiah, you take your holiness and you touch us and you tell us that we are clean, that our sins are forgiven, and that we are welcomed into your presence, all because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you and we rejoice in your gift of love to us. In Jesus' name. Happy Father's Day. Thanks.